This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to begin a series on a man um, who has rocked the political world as well as the uh, Christian ecclesiastical world, literally, since 1704. Uh, A professor said once that he took upon himself the challenge that whenever he goes anywhere in the world... He visits a local bookstore to see if there is a copy of something by Swift, and in all of his journeys and on every continent, he has never one time been disappointed. I want to start doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Good reason to travel. So, you know, the writings of Jonathan Swift are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Well, you know, they really are. Uh, A few years ago, I had a first-generation American student uh, whose family was from the Philippines, and she came up to me after class, and she told me that her dad was so excited that we were reading Gulliver's Travels because it was the only book in our entire curriculum that he had read in high school because he had gone to high school in Manila and had read Swift and Tagalog. So there you go. There's one example of what you're talking about. His presence has enveloped the globe. But having said that, Don't be fooled into thinking that this is a fun or even an easy read because it isn't. Students complain, you know, because when they look at the cover, they get excited and thinking they're going to read a Jack Black movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I don't blame them. I mean, uh, it is challenging, especially in our contemporary setting. You know, for one thing, the language. Let's just be honest, especially for an American like myself, reading anything written in Ireland is going to be a little challenging uh, just by the nature of the differences in dialect. But um, Gulliver's Travels was published in 1726. I mean, that's 300 years ago. But beyond language barriers, uh, I mean, this is a political book written in a specific period of time. The rhetorical situation in many ways is hundreds of years removed from this political moment. True, except not really. (laughs) Which which is why people keep coming back to him. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a straight allegory. um, Because everything 
although, you know, things do change, people stay the same. And I know that reading the first few pages can feel discouraging. I challenge you to push through because almost everyone who reads this book, once they get past those admitted difficult hurdles of language and all that kind of stuff, they find it incredibly funny and incredibly relevant. George Orwell in 1946, so now that's much closer to us, wrote a very famous essay about Gulliver's Travels titled Politics Versus Literature. And he said in the essay, if I had to make a list of six books which were to be preserved from all others were to be destroyed, I would certainly put Gulliver's Travels among them. So there you go. There's a shout out. But beyond the political relevance, let's just be honest, there is enough about urine, poop, and breasts to keep even the middle schooler inside of all of us engaged in the reading. (laughs) Well, at least there's that, huh? Another point worth mentioning. I find it incredibly ironic, and this is true. Jonathan Swift shares a birthday with America's most understood or misunderstood and probably banned historical satirist, and that would be Mark Twain. Uh, yes, and he also has the same birthday as Winston Churchill as well, which is November 30th. I mean, apparently November 30th is the day to be born on. <laughs> I guess that's true. But going back to political satire and being misunderstood, Jonathan Swift was not misunderstood. In fact, he was entirely understood, and that was the problem. Some of the things he was saying, he was saying on purpose. I mean, he wanted to upset the apple cart. There's a idiom if you're an English language learner it means he intentionally wanted to mess things up and because of that lots of people even in his lifetime called him a misanthrope that is a person who hates people but he wasn't he wasn't misanthropic at all he was a grouch for sure but he's one of those people that acts grouchy but it's not a real thing it's a facade or a persona because he really did truly love people uh he loved them individually and he also loved them as countrymen he loved his own people he railed against ireland but actually he famously said i have ever hated all nations professions and communities and all my love towards individuals for instance i hate the tribe of lawyers but I love counselors such as one and judge a one. So with physicians, I will not speak of my own trade. Soldiers, English, French, Scotch, and the rest. But principally, I hate and detest the animal called man. Although I heartily love Peter, James, Thomas, and so forth. So he genuinely loved people. And we see this play out in how he invested his time, how he invested his money, his satire You know, it's not designed to destroy anyone or even any group of people, but he really wanted to cause societal change. And in fact, he did. During his lifetime, he was successful in doing exactly that in his writings, even though that could get you in serious trouble. In fact, two of his printers uh, were arrested. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's interesting to point out right off the bat that uh, Swift published Gulliver's Travels anonymously, didn't put his name on it. In fact, uh, didn't he publish all of his satirical works anonymously? Yes, I mean, you'd have to. It was dangerous business back then. He was a real 
Live, Lady Whistleton. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it always comes back to Bridgerton. The story of how Gulliver's Travels uh, was published anonymously is, is a kind of a good place for us to start. It's a funny jumping-off point and can give us a little entry into the mind and maybe the personality of this quirky guy, Jonathan Swift. He's ridiculous. He's hilarious. He's mysterious, as well as stubborn, cranky, contrary. I mean, he claimed to be all about the ancients and tradition and there's a sense that that's absolutely true. But on the other hand, there's a sense that that's just garbage. Because mostly he's progressive, literally centuries in his thinking ahead of his time, if you look at the ideas of what he proposes. Uh, you know, a case in point, he was definitely one of the first that I know of um, to talk about Ireland as a nation of three people groups. Uh, the Irish Catholics and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians. And although to us that may or may not sound like three distinct people groups, uh, it absolutely is. And they did not identify with each other at this time, even if they were sharing the same physical space. So that's pretty forward thinking. So true. Uh, He was a member of a very famous informal group of literary heads in his day known as the Scribblers Club. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that that club reminds me of uh, the uh, Detection Club Agatha Christie founded. Um, it, you know, except in, instead of being a group of detective writers or a group of satirical writers, can you imagine sitting around that dinner table? Oh, my gosh, I know. Uh, one of the most obvious differences, though, between the Detection Club and the Scribblest Club is that the Scribblest Club actually published documents collectively under this fake name, one of them being the Memoirs of Martinus Scriblerus. <laughs> I can't imagine, uh, you know, what it would be like, as you say, sitting around the table with some of those guys listening to these clowns, these satirists, people like Alexander Pope and Jonathan Smith. And here they were solving the world's problems, putting things together, doing it in joke form, cracking each other up. Kind of like what I think would be like to hang out with Adam Sandler or something. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I, I know it delights you to know in that their main target was pompous people. So true. I love it. Swift was one of those people, you know, that you either love them or hate them, depending on if you have an ability to laugh at yourself or at least laugh playfully at human folly. He is irreverent and vulgar on purpose. He acts like he hates people, but if you see what he does... And the level on which he does it, there is no one that has been compassionate financially on the scale that Jonathan Swift was during his day. He was a historical hero in Ireland. I feel like you're getting us prepared to be offended. I kind of am. Because here is a Christian minister who starts his novel pretending to be a guy whose mentor is named Master Bates. He is trying to see how far he can go before he gets canceled. (laughs) But Gary, let's just start off by telling the story of how Swift went about getting Gulliver's Travels published. And then we'll go back and set up the life and times of dear Jonathan Swift and tackle maybe the first page of our book. Okay. Well, um, like you said earlier, it was published in 1726. Uh, Swift had been the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral for over a decade by that point. Okay, so let's back that up just a minute. For those of us who aren't from uh, the area, what is St. Patrick's? 
St. Patrick's is the largest cathedral in Ireland. Um, it's the National Cathedral. It's 800 years old. So think about that for a minute. I mean, it was ancient when Swift was dean. The Office of Dean has existed since 1219. Think about that for a moment. I mean, it's located in the heart of Dublin. Uh, you know, this is a sacred and a special place. Uh, so at this point in his career, he is a somebody on the religious and the political scene. Two years before, he had penned uh, and even altered politics through his writing a series of anonymous pamphlets that we today call the Drapier Letters. And even though he was a privileged member of the English class, he publicly condemned English attempts to debase Irish coinage. I mean, it was risky, um, but it worked. And, you know, to make a long story short, the powers backed down and Swift became a national hero. Uh, by 1726, it was time for him to strike again, so he arranged for the manuscript of half his book to be dropped off in secret by a person, not himself, at the house of a publisher, Benjamin Mott. With the half a book, he included a letter signed by Gulliver's supposed cousin, Richard Simpson, offering Mott the rest of Gulliver's travels for 200 pounds, which I might say was a lot of money. Um, in fact, it was more than Swift made in a year at his first religious post in Ireland. Mott, who was the publisher, read the manuscript and accepted the offer, and he paid the money uh, and received the rest of the book via the same secret intermediary. <laughs> The Scribbler Club people. <laughs> yes, and he published it without knowing for sure who had written it, so it must have been compelling. Well, it was. It was an instant success. In fact, within five months, he'd come out with three editions. A contemporary of Swift said, It is universally read from the cabinet council to the nursery. And what I find funny is that if you look at his correspondence to even his friends, he kept the ruse up, I mean, a long time. Here's one example from uh, a letter from Swift to a man named Knightley Chetwad, and it's from February 14th of the next year. As to Captain Gulliver, I find his book is very much censored in this kingdom, which abounds in excellent judges. But in England, I hear it hath made a bookseller almost rich enough to be an alderman. In my judgment, I should think it hath been mangled in the press, for in some parts it doth not seem of a piece. But I shall hear more when I am in England. <laughs> like he doesn't know. Right. <laughs> I will say, however, that 10 years after it was officially published, he did uh, claim it. So it, was, it wasn't eternally an orphan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so before we get into the story, uh, and you have to admit, Christy, it is a little bit like the Jack Black movie. So okay. if you haven't read it yet and you love the movie, don't be too discouraged. Uh, let's back up and talk about Swift's life because it has as much mystery and intrigue as the publishing of the book, if maybe not more. Oh, I'd say much more. Swift was born in Dublin eight months after his father died, and, and he liked to say, and this is his humor on display, that he was born in time enough to save his mother's credit. But even that is a mystery, poor thing. I mean, the records have been lost even during that time period. And today there is speculation, especially by Swift's most recent biographer, Leo Dams Damrocks, that someone else was his father. And Swift suspected it. Uh, it only matters, and you'll see where this matters, in his ability to marry the love of his life years later. Oh, my. That sounds serious. I know. And it is. Anyway, when he was one year old, listen to this. This is crazy. So he has a suspicious birth, but then he's handed over to a wet nurse. 
This woman, the nurse, actually kidnapped him and smuggled him to her home in Leicestershire, which is two hours by car today from London. But you can see that's nowhere near Dublin. She claimed she loved him so much, and I guess she did. I don't really know. The whole story is sketchy. His real mom let him stay with the nurse for three years because the mom didn't think he should risk a sea voyage back to Dublin, which I guess makes sense. But ultimately, he had little to do with his mother his whole life almost, at least till he was 21 years old, because even after he went back to Dublin, he didn't live with her. He was officially in the custody of his uncles, and they sent him away to boarding school, Kilkenny College, and that was at age six. Well, you know, let me point this out. Uh, culturally for us as Americans, that sounds strange, uh, but it isn't really in other parts of the world. I mean, in fact, um, Kilkenny College is a prestigious boarding school to this day with over half of its student population still being boarders. And in fact, today it's the largest co-ed boarding school in Ireland. I know that's true, but I looked that up, and the admissions today isn't six, it's 12. But anyway, from there, Swift went to another prestigious school, one that most of us around the world have heard of before because it's famous and highly competitive and prestigious, and that's Trinity College, also in Dublin. Swift stayed there seven years, so, you know, he had... Probably, I, I, I mean, I think it's an undoubtedly the best education possible in Ireland. Although, if you go by Swift, he wasn't a very good student. Uh, either way, he was on track to get his master's degree, and he would have, except he got muddled through, you know, political entanglements oh, of the day. Oh, <laughs> that'll catch you up. Um, you know, and uh, 1685 seems so long ago for us Americans whose history is so much shorter uh, than our neighbors. But it's also hard for us to follow, but, but to make a complicated story short, Europe at this point in time is at war everywhere. Uh, but in the case of Ireland and England specifically, there is this matter of who's going to be king. Isn't that always the problem? <laughs> well, that's why you can have so many Netflix series on the, that's true the too. English government. Um, so, uh, yeah, but we're going we're gonna to layer some religion on top of this. Um, king James II came to the throne, but he was Catholic, and he introduced laws for religious toleration of non-Anglicans. Um, that's not just Catholics, but Presbyterians as well. And Parliament, which was not Catholic at the time, worried he was trying to inch his way subtly in and, you know, wanted to make the country Catholic again and something they were not having. And this is all hard to follow, but, you know, James's daughter married a guy named William of Orange, and now William is the heir of the throne. William is not Catholic, and William is not English. Well, being not Catholic, doesn't that make everyone happy? <laughs> well, you you think, uh, and maybe that would have been the case, except um, King James II has another child, and he's a boy. Uh, now, some people think William, who is Protestant, should be heir to the throne. Others think the little Catholic child should be. And William of Orange, um, who was actually Dutch, invaded with the permission of the Protestant ruling body. And the whole thing is called the Glorious Revolution, which I know that term is an oxymoron. <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah. Everyone took sides and things got ugly, but ultimately... 
ultimately William and Mary prevailed. And kind of as a side note to all this, the Glorious Revolution ultimately really changes how England was governed. You know, it had the effect of giving Parliament more power over the monarchy, and that really created the beginnings of the political democracy that eventually we inherited here in this country. Well, Swift, just like you, got carried away in all of it. <laughs> uh, of course, you would expect that from a college student. In the end, he left Ireland, and he moved in with his mother in England for a little while, but then at age 22, took a job as a private secretary for a man named Sir William Temple, someone we all can tell is important because, you know, he's a sir. <laughs> in front of his name there. Yes. Well, you're correct. And uh, let me make this note. Uh, Temple was a diplomat who brokered the marriage between William and Mary. So he's a big-time player. He's important. Uh, Temple was a very prominent political player in English life in general. Uh, he was personal friends of William and Mary, and he also became Swift's mentor. How about that for success? And he introduced Swift to a whole new world, um, which included personal access to William of Orange. And uh, Swift worked basically as a stenographer for Temple in his country home in Surrey at Moore Park. Well, you know, uh, I find that so incredibly funny and ironic. I mean, here's this guy, uh, Swift, who is one day going to have books in every single shop in, in countries all over the world. And his job is basically to write out he's like a typist for the old days notes from somebody else i bet temple would have been totally surprised at the reversal <laughs> of thing i mean no one's heard of temple if he were to time travel that is and you know come up to see anyway let's we're getting to the good part so this guy's had a crazy story we already know he's going to be an important historical hero and write anonymously and that is not even the good part nope the good part's his mysterious love life yes indeed <laughs> it is so, as part of Swift's duties at Moore Park, he's tasked with being the personal tutor to the housekeeper's daughter, hmm, a little girl, age seven, named Esther Johnson, a woman who, when she grows up, will be called Stella in Swift's writing. She apparently got a great education from him. Uh, one funny detail is that their handwritings are absolutely identical. You can hardly tell them apart. But anyway, Swift gets sick. Today we know he had what is diagnosed as Meniere's disease, but that the diagnosis didn't exist at the time. They had no idea what was wrong with him. I mean, he was suffering deafness, vomiting, giddiness. He could hear voices in his head. I can't imagine. It must have been truly awful. But they assessed that he was probably eating too many apples or that the climate was a problem makes sense <laughs> so they sent him to ireland to see if that would improve things it didn't you know shockingly it wasn't the apple problem but uh while he's there time passes and then he comes back goes to oxford gets his ma becomes an ordained anglican priest gets appointed gets sent back to this teeny tiny parish no no near belfast He's not crazy about that post. You know why he's not crazy about it? Too many Presbyterians. <laughs> oh, that can be a problem. Should we tell people we're Presbyterian? Oh, I know. I hope I hope it doesn't matter. Hopefully no one besides Swift will hold that against us. But Swift hated the gig. And after about a year, decided to come back to work for Temple at his house. And that's where he began his writing career with this really brutal satire on institutional religion 
titled A Tale of a Tub. This work, uh, you know, typical for Swift, was published anonymously, and it was a harsh criticism of the church, and it's what he knew from the inside. You know, indeed. And, and well, you know, the book was enormously popular with most people, um, but obviously not with the religious elite. And since he worked for the church, you know, it likely kept Swift from ever getting the golden appointments that he wanted all of his life, but was always denied. And Queen Anne, of course, was not a fan of his work. No, she was going to block it. Uh, and so St. Patrick's it was, although that to me seems like that would be a golden post. That's a big deal. You know, well, it's not a terrible job, obviously, and it paid well, uh, but it was out in the sticks and Swift wanted to be in London and and the powers didn't want him there. And he would be the dean of St. Patrick really for the rest of his life. Well, I'm going to jump back in with the interesting part, his love life. His first love was this girl named Jane Waring. You know, he met her back in his Trinity days. And at some point during that year, when he was in Ireland, away from Moore Park and Esther, he he and Jane got reacquainted. Jane, by the way, is seven years younger than him. That's important because every time he gets a new girl, he goes younger and younger and younger. But anyway, <laughs> Swift would call her Verena. And he also has this interesting habit of renaming all the women in his life. I don't know why. But anyway, in his letters, if they're to be understood correctly, he proposes to Jane, but she doesn't want to marry him. He, and, and she tells him, you know, he's the vicar of this little church no Belfast, and he's poor. He begs Verena in these letters to reconsider. Obviously, we don't know, you know, all the back and forth because we don't have all the letters. But it appears she, him, hauled around. He goes back to England. And when he goes back, little Esther isn't seven anymore. She's a teenager, which, you know, apparently that was appropriate at those days. But he and Verena keep writing. At some point, Verena wants to get back with Swift. But by that point... No go. (laughs) So does he dump her for Stella or Esther or or whatever we want to call her? Well, it's a mystery. In fact, Esther, Stella, whatever we want to call her, is a mystery. Everything about her is a mystery. She's the housekeeper's daughter. But Sir Temple gets this tutor for her. She's different. None of the other servants get this kind of treatment. Uh, Also, when Temple dies, he lives, leaves. He doesn't live. Uh, a large estate for her in his will. Again, something that none of the others got. So there you go. What do you make of that? Are you suggesting that the housekeeper and Temple had a more than professional relationship? (laughs) Well, we can only speculate. But at this point, Esther is a teenager. She's 14 years younger than Swift. But she's absolutely brilliant and she's absolutely beautiful. According to Swift, and let me quote him, She had a gracefulness somewhat more than human in every motion, word, and action. Never was so happy a conjunction of civility, freedom, easiness, and sincerity. You know, Esther, besides being incredibly smart, because she wrote, they wrote all their lives together, and incredibly beautiful, she also is strong and independent and outgoing. Uh, There's a story, a famous story, about a time a burglar came to Moore Park. There is one boy there, but no grown men. So she puts on a black hood, got a pistol, 
tiptoed to the dining room and shot one of the intruders <laughs> herself. Ooh, there you go. They left, uh, by the way, after that. <laughs> so Esther and Swift, you know, would become eventually best friends all of their lives. And after her younger sister got married, she and her roommate moved to Dublin just to be near Swift. And except for the period of time when Swift was in England, they would see each other every single day. And when he was in London, they wrote letters, many of which we still have. He even kept a diary, and he would send his diary to her in full every two weeks. Esther knew more about Jonathan Swift than any other person on the planet. And yet, they never married. Do we know why? Well... You know, it's been a long time, so you know how rumors go over time. But there is speculation. Dr. Damrosh, the one I referenced earlier, thinks uh, they were actually related. So Jonathan's real father potentially could have been William Temple's brother. William Temple, the one that we think is her father. And if that were the case, then they they would have been like uncle and niece. And the, the suggestion is that they knew that or they they suspected that uh, there's quite a bit of evidence that they married they did marry secretly but because of their birth thing and the accusation of incest you didn't want that for the dean of saint patrick so you have to keep that all on the down low true <laughs> true uh you know but for whatever reason uh there is no doubt that they were lifelong intimate friends yes and and that's sweet and i and, and wonderful but don't think that's the end of the scandal <laughs> Because it seems that Jonathan, and I'm not going to say it's all men, but lots of them do, uh, when he was away, he found another chickadee in London. Oh, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, men are always accused of those kinds of things. But anyway, while in London, he was there for 12 years, so we're not talking about a two-week stint. He hooked up with a girl, and this girl, 21 years younger than him so you know 7 14 21 i don't know if there's a pattern he goes younger every time well you know the more i hear the story the more i'm surprised that you like this guy (laughs) i know i find myself getting past all of these problems because of his charms anyway he met another girl and her name is esther too but he calls her vanessa in his letter see he renames all these girls I'll call her that so we can keep things from being confusing. Anyway, Vanessa also is brilliant. She's a reader. They get along. And she falls head over heels. There's no argument about this. Absolutely smitten in love with Swift. We know that for sure because she would write rough drafts to her letters to him and she kept them. So when Swift gets the job as Dean of St. Patrick, he goes back to Dublin And he breaks off the relationship, whatever it is, with her. But the breakup didn't go well. (laughs) They go back and forth, and she won't accept it. In one letter, I'm going to read this quote. He says this, I had your last splenatic letter. I told you when I left London, I would endeavor to forget everything there and would write as seldom as I could. Oh, I cannot even imagine that that worked. (laughs) No, it didn't. Uh, And their correspondence went on and on, really, until she died. Here's another one from her. "'Tis now ten long, long weeks since I saw you, and all that time I have never received but one letter from you and a little note with an excuse. Oh, blank." 
How have you forgot me? You endeavor by severities to force me from you, nor can I blame you. Yet I cannot comfort you, put my passion under the utmost restraint. Send me a distant from you as the earth will allow, yet you cannot banish those charming ideas which will ever stick by me while I have the use of memory. Nor is the love I bear you only seated in my soul, for there is not a single atom of my frame that is not blended within. <laughs> uh, you know, is this one of those fatal attraction type scenarios? <laughs> well, it might be a little, actually. Um, I'm not psycho. really sure, although, because re- reading these letters, they kind of look like that. But Swift loved strong, smart women. He treated them with respect. I know that probably wasn't common in those days. It was very endearing. He wrote Vanessa. I I mean, you can read it. Some beautiful love poetry. They were clearly intellectually compatible. They probably, well, I don't know about probably. They may have had a sexual relationship. In some of their letters, they say things like, I miss your coffee. And, And they use this word coffee as a euphemism for things that, you know, make you think it's not really coffee. (laughs) But this is all old. So all we know is that she did follow him to Dublin against his wishes, against his approvals, even after all those leave me alone letters. Wow. Uh, You know, what did the elder Esther have to say about that? A very good question. And I have no idea because Esther or Stella, there's no question, was the love of his life. All the biographers who've read everything he's ever written, all the letters, everything, and really know this stuff, they agree on that. It's likely that they had that secret wedding right then when he moved back to Dublin after he this thing with Vanessa. Uh, at least that's the scuttlebutt. Stella, Esther, whatever you want to call her, she won. I mean, she won that cat fight. Uh, but sadly enough, either way, Vanessa died not too long after that in 1723 she was in her 30s so that's tragic it is you know and and one year before he printed those drapier letters it basically made him famous yes uh and it was three years before lemuel gulliver will make his conspicuous appearance dropping off the travel memoirs at that printer Uh, i guess i know i should be surprised that swift didn't write any love dramas (laughs) True. Uh, it's too close to home. That's right. And I know this is getting ahead, but women aren't exactly portrayed in the best light in this book. Well, no, they're not. But, you know, I guess no one is. Not even the narrators portrayed the best of light in this book. Uh, I know there that's a lot of backstory, but it's fascinating. But since we've moved over to Gulliver, let's talk about our narrator. Because Lemuel Gulliver is the person who supposedly lived this fantastical experience known as Gulliver's Travels. Ah, well, it is. And let me start by saying um, Lemuel Gulliver is a middle-class 18th century Englishman striving uh, to better his position in English society. Uh, This quote says, My father had a small estate in Nottinghamshire. I was the third of five sons. He sent me to Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Uh, And so if we keep reading, we find out that he's an apprentice to a surgeon named James Bates. And because he couldn't finish his education, he's not nobility. He's not even rich enough to finish college, but um, he's certainly not a peasant. Uh, His problem is that education is really how we generally attain upward mobility in Western societies. And he had an obvious impasse. So he's trying to make an alternate route. 
Yes, and let me just say you read the first sentence of the book. So we are actually getting into the book today. Uh, but, uh, you know, it becomes important because we see as a motif through the book that Gulliver wants a place, a prestigious place in society. And this is one of the focuses of Swift's satire. Swift, in every single adventure, teases Gulliver with this possibility of social upward mobility, but Gulliver never gets it, not in the faraway lands and not when he comes back home, to the point that it becomes comical and absurd where he does end up at the end of the book. One of the big takeaways for us as readers is to ultimately notice that social climbing makes us lose perspective of what's important and it robs us of any contentment we might have if we could be really people engaged in our real world with the people in our real lives. That's a lesson that keeps on giving, right? Oh, for sure. (laughs) You know, and I wonder if that uh, is the lesson he learned the hard way by being sent to exile, at least in his mind at the time, you know, sent away from London and back to Dublin, the land he claimed to be dropped into, to use his own words. Well, maybe. I mean, of course, when he came back, he was a national hero, and he remained so until the time of his death. And he's a hero to this day, and and rightly so. So here we see Swift writes a travel book. It's been seven years since Daniel Defoe published Robinson Crusoe. We've all heard that name, and that book was an adventure story, and some people consider it, it's often considered to be the first novel. And Crusoe's novel was about an ordinary guy having a crazy experience the story seemed like it could have really happened the way he wrote it which is one reason people loved it and one way that defoe made created this effect was he included all kinds of very specific and objective descriptions of the minutiae details of the trip that made it seem realistic everything felt real well swift is going to do the same thing in this book from the very beginning and there is a lot of inane detail, at least for us as modern readers, and that's something that you know people who read the book today can find annoying. But another point I want to bring up is that at this particular time, travel literature in general was really popular. I mean, sailors would come home from their journeys at sea, and they'd have all these crazy stories that were supposedly true, and people loved them, and I mean, maybe the story, some of them were true, but we can only imagine that lots of the exploits were hyperbolic. I mean, I'm sure they were. That's how people talk, right? This is the fish story. But Swift is going to take this popular genre and he's going to make a parody out of the travel writing. So he has kind of a mock book, if you want to think of it that way. Gulliver goes to all these lands and he's going to have all these adventures, except, of course, in this case, the stories are absolutely completely made up they're super absurd to the point that it's supposed to be obvious anyone in their right mind shouldn't believe them (laughs) true except they did (laughs) you know some people uh, even after swift owned the story still hung on to these lands as actual places and in fact real sailors would claim to have seen lilliputians i can imagine i can just (laughs) see that happening (laughs) i think it's awesome Uh, When you open the book, before the story even starts, there are three totally fake documents right at the front. There's an advertisement, a letter from Captain Gulliver to his cousin Simpson, and a note from the publisher. You don't really need to read them, honestly, to understand the story. They weren't even in the first edition of the book, but they're put there on purpose. And one of the reasons why they are is to clearly establish 
that Gulliver is a crazy person. <laughs> so you're saying Gulliver from the beginning is crazy, or the travels made him crazy? That, of course, is the question. In The Tale of a Tub, you know, Jonathan Swift says, now, Tale of a Tub, remember, is another uh, piece that he wrote, the one about the church. He says this, When a man's fancy gets astride of his reason, when imagination is at cuffs with the senses and common understanding as well as common sense is kicked out the door, the first proselyte he makes is himself. And when that is encompassed, the difficulty is not so great in bringing others over. In other words, let me put that in the way we talk. Once you choose to get rid of reason in your argument... Or you choose to deny common sense, kick it out the door, as he says, for any reason, the first convert to insanity that you make is yourself. That needs to be a bumper sticker right there. (laughs) The first convert to insanity is yourself. Well, uh, so there is a sense that choosing to pretend um, to be what you are not or not interpreting what you're seeing objectively, um, if you keep it up, eventually it will make you crazy. Yes, and when Jonathan Swift went to revise his book for future editions, the letter at the beginning clearly establishes before you ever read one sentence about Voyage 1 to Lilliput that that's what's happened. When we read any first-person account, we're supposed to assume that the narrator, especially if it's a first-person account, the I of the story is the I, E-Y-E. See the pun? Mm. I am the I. I saw. And in a very real sense, Gulliver is every bit of that. He was there. He saw things. But what we notice as we progress through the book is that although Gulliver can describe to the minutia detail what he is experiencing, he misinterprets the information in ways that are obvious His judgments are what's bad. (laughs) Well, and his political positions are extremely inconsistent. Sometimes he's pro-English, and other times he calls them all corrupt. And uh, sometimes he's naive. And I've noticed there's a few times he's actually factually wrong in what he's saying about the English during the time period. And uh, he also changes his opinion of England pretty much every time he talks to a different kind. I mean, what's the point of that? Well, you have to remember that the views of Gulliver are not the views of Jonathan Swift. That's different. This isn't Swift. Swift's voice makes fun of Gulliver just as he makes fun of the rest of us. When we read satire, and you have to remember that satire is a unique form of literature, satire distorts, it exaggerates, it mocks, it imitates, it ridicules its subject, but it doesn't do that just to be mean. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. Just making fun of something is not satire. Ridiculing people, mocking people, making fun of people is not satire. Something is only satire if you're trying to use humor for a serious or a moral purpose. That has to be obvious. It's the same thing. Satire is the same thing as a sermon like you might hear in church, with the exception that it's actually entertaining, or more entertaining it's supposed to be. It requires a lot of intelligence of an unusual sort to kind of create satire, and it takes intelligence to understand it. It's not easy. And we see this all the time with modern comedians who take a stab at 
extremely controversial subjects through satire. Ricky Gervais, Dave Chappelle, those two come to mind immediately. But there are others. Not all comedians do satire. Even the ones that make fun of people. Again, making fun of people is not satirical. Satire targets our propensity to do evil. The seven seven deadly sins. Our propensity to have pride, greed, envy, lust, gluttony, wrath, sloth. It points out where we've fallen into these things and maybe we haven't noticed that's what we've done. It wants to change our minds. As we go through the stories of the, these voyages, you know, you can enjoy them on the superficial level. And, and that's the level that kids read it when they're reading the kid versions of them. But the stories were never written for children and they weren't meant to be read like that. In fact, they're not even appropriate for children in various places. You'll see that when we go through. But what we want to do in the podcast is break down the satire of the story. Because I think that's how you get the most out of the books. All right, having said all that, next episode, we'll start it. Because we don't have time today. But we'll start after Gulliver is shipwrecked. You read the first little paragraph of the story. But after he's re- shipwrecked, he wakes up half a mile from the shore. He's in Lilliput. He realizes he's been tied down to the grass where he slept. He's been discovered by six-inch tall people group who happen, by the way, to be fabulous mathematicians <laughs> and engineers. He's a giant because he's a real-sized person. And we're going to enter this new world, which is really taking a look at English culture, English habits, skills, uh, with this eyeball from the sky. And Swift is going to try to make it look unfamiliar enough to where we can see how silly we are all in many ways. George Orwell in that same essay said this about Gulliver's Travels. The aim, as usual, is to humiliate man by reminding him that he's weak and ridiculous and above all, that he stinks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's to the point. I mean, uh, and that can be true both metaphorically and literally. Yes, and I think we will be ready next episode to go to Lilliput. All right, let's go. Uh, you know, I've heard it's southwest of uh, Sumatra in Australia, somewhere in the Indian Ocean. Uh, so they say. Well, we'll speculate <laughs> further in the future. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Thanks for dropping in as we introduce this uh, really interesting, fun new work. Uh, we always like to ask you to uh, connect with us on social media, you know, Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn. We've got all that stuff out there. Go to our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We'll keep you up to date on everything going on with the podcast. Plus, you know, you can get yourself a T-shirt or a mug. Anyway, thanks again for being with us. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.